everybody. As uh, Rob announced at uh, the beginning of the uh, service, this is the second of two sermons on a short but dangerous section of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, In actual fact, um, this short series of sermons is part of a longer series of sermons on 1 Corinthians, uh, begun last year with four sermons on the first four chapters. Um, And it's a sermon series that we'll come back to uh, the Lord willing later in the year, and hopefully over time we'll look at the entire book, 1 Corinthians. Well, 1 Corinthians is one of two surviving letters from a whole series of letters that moved back and forth between the Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth and Paul, who at the time of writing was in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, about 500 kilometers away, due east across the Aegean Sea. Paul knows the church intimately. He founded it and he visited it many times in his travels, and in fact he spent considerable time there. Chapters 5 and 6 are one discrete section within the long letter. This section, united by a tone of very sharp rebuke, harsh language, and a refrain that becomes something of a catchphrase. Do you not know, as it appears in our Pew Bibles, or as it possibly could also be translated, have you not understood? Seven times we hear, have you not understood? And in this section there are two presenting issues. One, there is sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. And two, there are lawsuits among believers. Last week, we looked at the first of those issues. This week, we'll consider the second. As chapter 6 opens, Paul is aghast at what is happening in Corinth. One Christian is taking another Christian to court, almost certainly because the plaintiff, that is the one bringing the the, the case to court, the the plaintiff uh, believes that they are being cheated by the defendant, the one who's being charged with wrongdoing by the plaintiff. And in Greco-Roman cities and towns, the town magistrate would have a desk set up in the marketplace together with associated staff in order to hear what we might call criminal or civil proceedings. One Christian is taking another Christian to law in front of the secular courts, in front of unbelievers. And Paul's language in response to all of this, is, is, pre- is pretty much as, as strong as it gets in terms of sharp rebuke. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. An almost unimaginable rebuke in an honor-shame culture. Is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Sarcasm, scorn, derision, poured out upon a congregation of believers who pride themselves on their knowledge and on their wisdom, their spiritual wisdom. 
Well, in um, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6, Paul itemizes all of the ways in which this church um, has herself become completely defeated in order that such a thing might even possible, be possible. Let us count the ways. Firstly, one brother does wrong and cheats another. Well, how could that possibly happen? How could someone who has heard the gospel and understood not have understood God's utter searing hatred of sin, the inevitability of judgment, the the, the fact that everything hidden will become plain? How could someone who has heard the gospel think for a moment they could possibly get away with this? Secondly, the other brother responds by defending their own cause, by suing the wrongdoer and taking legal action against them. How could that possibly happen? As Paul himself says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? How could somebody who has heard the gospel not know what to do in a situation like this? Forgive. Let it go. Love your enemy more than property. Bless in response to curse. Thank God that you now have the one thing you need if you're going to show yourself to be a Christian, which is an enemy. Praise God, how can you be a Christian without an enemy? Now you've got one. Third, the church herself just sits idly by while all this happens. How could, how could that happen? How could a community of people who have the mind of Christ, the written word of God, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore theoretically wiser and more insightful than any other human agency, how could they not know, not have understood how to resolve this issue? How could a group of people that God has set aside to rule the nations with an iron scepter and govern angels in the world to come, how could they not be able to make a judgment or ruling in a case such as this? It's staggering. And, and fourth, it's a fourth thing that's wrong. The individuals themselves, with the whole church giving implicit assent, consent, they air their dirty laundry in front of unbelievers. The Corinthian church not only has no thought to her public witness, no, they, they trash it themselves. For in their behavior, they publicly confess that the gospel isn't true and that the wisdom of the world is superior to anything that Jesus might have given them. And the chief difficulty of all these difficulties that Paul is confronting in these two chapters, the chief difficulty is essentially this. The Corinthian Christians have no idea who they are. Chapter 5, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Chapter 6, verse 2. Have you not understood that the Lord's people will judge the world? Chapter 6, verse 11. 
And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul makes it clear in these chapters who we, as baptized Christians, who we actually are. And equally clear, therefore, who we actually aren't. Because he presents, as Paul commonly does in his letters, he presents us with sin lists. At chapter 5, uh, verse 11, anyone who claims to be a Christian isn't and cannot also be any of these things. If they persist, do not even eat with them. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, do not be deceived. People who likewise persist in these activities will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, these two sin lists have many terms in common. The fact that they are not identical, of course, means that they're not to be, we're not to understand them as, as ex exhaustive or comprehensive. No, uh, rather they are illustrative, giving us the general idea. Each item on the list deserves um, exploration and discussion, but that won't be my focus today because that would require a good deal of time. But just a few general comments about both sin lists. Uh, both sin lists are headed up by the term pornea, uh, the Greek word from which we get the English word pornography. Uh, and it's usually translated as sexual immorality. We spoke about the meaning of that term in some detail last week. W one thing that may not be obvious to us in fact, it, it, it won't be obvious, I think, is that by each term, Paul is referring to actions, uh, to things that people do. So then, for example, when Paul cites the greedy as those in chapter 6 who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and thus in chapter 5 are likewise to be excluded from all Christian fellowship. He is referring to a group of people who do certain things. Um, I guess uh, for me, uh, perhaps like many of us, um, I, from time to time, uh, struggle with uh, discontent and the desire for more. I find the idea of winning the 20 or 30 million dollar lotto jackpot uh, an enticing idea, a tempting idea, somehow that seems like a good thing to do in my mind, at least from time to time. But this in and of itself does not make me a greedy person. A fool perhaps, yes, sure, but not a greedy person. No, a greedy person, in terms of how this term is used, is a person who plots and acts so as to acquire wealth by scheming, falsehood, extortion, theft, etc., etc. Paul's lists do not refer to internal predispositions or personal inclinations or proclivities or struggles, but rather to concrete acts. And likewise, therefore, a slanderer is not someone who struggles with their tongue and occasionally gives in to the temptation to, to, gossip, to gossip. That person like me, might be a fool, but isn't a slanderer in the sense that Paul means here. 
No, Paul's word refers to someone who intentionally is politically conniving. Someone who spreads bad reports or misleading reports about others behind their backs for personal political gain. Something most damaging in their world and in ours. Someone who seeks to destroy another by way of ruining their public reputation. And in fact, you could sum up a major theme in the book of Psalms with this little ditty. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will destroy my life completely. Lord, save me from lying tongues. Paul is uh, hard-headed about acts, about things that people do, although we also know that his gospel is soft-hearted towards weaknesses. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And Paul's thinking with respect to each term through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus' teaching, through the lens of the prophets and the law of Moses, Paul's thinking essentially is that each and every one of these things, these actions, is repugnant because it cannot be reconciled with being an image bearer. It is not who God is. It is not who Jesus is. It misrepresents the character and nature of God and therefore has absolutely no place in God's community. Um, So then, Paul's word to the Corinthian church is, this is what you are doing, but it's not who you are. At a theological level, Paul's teaching is, chapter 6, verse 9, have you not understood? Evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And at a practical level, therefore, it is inconceivable that people who do such things should be included in the church now, which is God's eschatological community, which means the people who live now what will be in the future. God's future people now. That's who we are. So two questions that emerge for us uh, include the following. Firstly... At a practical level, how are we going to judge ourselves? How are we going to make rulings? And a second one follows on directly. Is it always wrong or never wrong or only sometimes wrong for a Christian to take another Christian before secular courts? Let's look at the first question first. How might we judge ourselves and make rulings? Well, chapters 5 and 6 give us two general situations in which judgment for them is necessary. The first is when a brother or sister, in other words, a Christian in our fellowship, lives in such a way that is contrary to the gospel. And the fellowship therefore needs to consider the possibility of disassociation or excommunication. As we discovered last week when we looked at chapter 5, and as we also see this week in Jesus' words from Matthew's Gospel, such a question ultimately is a matter for the whole church. Not a special council, not for the pastor, not for the elders, but for the whole church, the whole community. The New Testament has what we would call a congregationalist approach 
to this question, everyone who is considered to be a member of the fellowship, probably as defined by that group of people who have been baptized and who receive Holy Communion, everyone has an equal say. And with respect to Jesus' words in chapter 18, step one is, step one is go and point out their fault to them just between the two of you. And that's usually interpreted uh, to mean go and point out their fault just quietly to all your other friends, two or three hundred of your closest friends, and choose somewhere discreet, like Facebook. But we also might have difficulties with the final step in the process, mightn't we? Um, If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And the problem we have is, what does that last phrase mean? The plain meaning is to have nothing to do with them socially at all, to not associate with them or eat with them. But is Jesus, who ate with tax collectors and sinners, is he being ironic? Does this mean, as many claim it means, that the unrepentant sinner is still socially welcome at our worship and at our gatherings, they just can't take Holy Communion? Is that what it means? I think that's unlikely, given the words that come afterwards, which emphatically state the extraordinary authority that Christian communities have as God's future people now. 1818 from Matthew's Gospel, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Um, Today, I guess in a place like Perth, these verses typically come under scrutiny when a young couple uh, chooses to live together before getting married. Uh, That's a common scenario. Uh, Pastors I have spoken to uh, about that type of situation all agree that it is a delicate pastoral matter that requires delicate pastoral handling and that it is absolutely impossible not to cause serious offense somewhere, even if you do nothing. I do get asked from time to time, how does church discipline work today? Uh, To which my best answer is, people punish pastors by leaving and going to another church. Because, of course, in a city the size of Perth, they can. I I do not wish to discourage us from being obedient to Scripture in matters of disciplinary action, but I do wish to demonstrate that these matters are complex, not simple. But in order to draw some kind of conclusion, here are some thoughts. Firstly, um, as Christians, we severely handicap our spiritual development. We create a stronghold against maturity when we consciously or unconsciously think of church as a consumer item over which we exercise individual choice in a consumer economy. 
when we look for a place that meets our needs or where we feel happy, we must take the matter of which church fellowship we belong to as a very serious matter. We are God's future people now. And so where we, where we worship is a matter to be wrought in prayer. And we must be prepared to go when we want to stay. And we must be prepared to stay and persevere when we feel like we really have had enough. enough. If we are Lord over this area of our lives, then Jesus isn't. But if it is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, then the Spirit will guide. Secondly, uh, in the Western world, and especially in the Anglican Church, we have made the concept of being welcoming into something of an idol, I think, a stronghold against maturity. To listen to much of the stuff that gets said in Anglican circles, you'd think that the very future of the church depends upon us being welcoming. And that's a blasphemous idea. If we know truly who we are, we'll be careful about who we include. Judgment within a Christian community is also necessary in the situation of lawsuits, the situation that Paul describes in chapter 6 as disputes between uh, brothers or disputes between believers. Paul gives no specific advice, but we should note his confidence that we are uniquely capable as God's future people now. We are uniquely capable to discern issues and insightfully make judgments. Well, these are just ideas. How do we do church discipline? Well, we, we, we read Scripture and we pray. We teach and we talk. Uh, we remember that Jesus um, doesn't want us to obey the Bible. Rather, the Bible wants us to obey Jesus. The distinction between those ideas is a very fine distinction, given that Jesus is the author of Scripture. A fine dis dis distinction, but critical. Please don't hear me as undermining the authority of Scripture. It is the Word of God. It has the authority of God. But we can't interpret it and live it without conversation. Without conversation with God, with Jesus, and conversation with each other. Lastly, and in the light of all that's been said already, the last question is, is it always wrong for a Christian to go to law against another Christian? Well, in a city like Perth, perhaps one common scenario is this. A Christian marriage fails, ending in divorce. Questions relating to finances and custody and care of the children land the separated couple in court, family court, separated and facing each other as adversaries. Here's another scenario. Uh, in the last decade of the 20th century, certain Anglican or Episcopalian dioceses in North America made decisions about homosexuality and homosexual practice that scandalized large numbers of people within their own fellowships. Dioceses all over North America, in Canada and in the United States, split. The so-called 
global Anglican realignment, wherein whole parishes seek to disassociate themselves from their parent diocese and whilst seeking pastoral oversight from either a new or foreign diocese. In the fallout of the global Anglican realignment, there have been uh, many, many lawsuits, especially over property and over church buildings and who what building belongs to whom and why, all done in secular law courts. Insofar as God expects us to live in obedience to the laws of the land and to be in submission to governors and rulers, it is not necessarily inappropriate for one Christian to go to court against another Christian insofar as we may need specialist help to know what the laws are and how to apply them in our situation in order to fulfill all righteousness. And legal rulings may be necessary as people move forward after conflict so everyone knows what's expected of them and why. But even so, in most instances, when one Christian goes to law against another, for whatever reasons, we shouldn't shield ourselves against the profound insight of Paul's writing here in chapter 6. We have been completely defeated already. And we must confess as much and beg God's forgiveness. And this is to the shame not only of the individuals involved, but even more so to the shame of the whole Christian community to whom they belong. Really, if, if we can't get it right, nobody can. The Christian community in Corinth, the church in Corinth, doesn't understand who she really is. As a direct consequence, she is completely trashing her public witness. Sexual immorality of a sort that would embarrass even pagans. Disputes within the church taken to secular law, law courts in order to be sorted out. Paul is, of course, correct in seeing this as a titanic disaster. Paul's sevenfold question to this church is, have you not understood? Have we understood? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.